we're going to be in Daniel. And last time we stopped short of finishing Daniel 11. Daniel 12 is kind of short. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick it up at Daniel 11:36, and I've gotten back of me a slide. One of the things about the book of Daniel is it ties in with both Revelation and Matthew. And there are a couple of different ways of saying the same thing. We're talking about a period of three and a half years. Everything that I'm talking about now is 360 day years, which lots of biblical commentators think is what God meant when he wrote all these books. As I said a time or two ago, all of the calendars in the world changed from 360 days to 365 days in 701 BC. And those of us who believe in the Bible believe that that was the long day of Hezekiah, when Hezekiah is laying on his sick bed and God says, what kind of a sign shall I give you? And Hezekiah says, I don't need a sign. And God says, I'll give you one anyway. And he cranks the sundial backwards, which takes me to an interesting side note. Do you realize that it was only the invention of mechanical clocks that take us to a consistent length hour? Before the invention of mechanical clocks, hours were divided up on a sundial. So an hour changed according to the season of the year. So at the time of the crucifixion, for example, you have to figure out how much daylight there was at Passover then, and then you would know what time on a modern clock the crucifixion was. And all of your commentaries were all about three o'clock in the afternoon. Three o'clock in the afternoon according to what? I'm sorry, that's complete non sequitur. So anyway, in 701 BC, the year changed from 360 days to 365 days. And lots of commentators in trying to make sense of Daniel and Revelation figure that the only way that it makes sense is if we're dealing with 360 day years. Daniel would have written after the time of Hezekiah. So at the time Daniel would have written his prophecies down, assuming you believe Daniel was written at the time when it says it was written, and I'm perfectly fine with that. I've already been through the riff of there are those who want to late date Daniel, but Yeshua calls him a prophet, so I don't care when it was written, as far as I'm concerned, it's a prophecy. So I'm not arguing with the scholars that say it was written late, I'm not arguing with the scholars that say it was written early, I'm simply saying Yeshua says it's a prophecy, so as far as I'm concerned, it's a prophecy. But at the time Daniel would have written this, either early or late, the year had already changed. So the length of a year was, at that point, 365 days. And certainly at the time John wrote Revelation, the year was at 365 days. But the problem is, if you go to 42 months and you make that be 1260 days or three and a half years, that arithmetic only works with a 360 day year. So what do we do with that? I have a hypothesis about Revelation. And when I taught Revelation, we went through this. The hypothesis is God was able to crank the sundial back by some number of hours, which messed up the entire year. 
as I read Revelation, a natural phenomenon that could cause the events of Revelation could be caused by the near pass of a massive body to the earth. We talked last time that NASA is looking for a dark body outside the plane of the ecliptic and all that kind of stuff. But if you have something close to an earth-sized planet and it comes flying through the plane of the ecliptic near where the earth is, the gravitational field of that will change the orbit of the earth. That's just spatial dynamics. Now, I'm not saying by that 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 God is not doing prophecy. I'm saying that he uses natural means to have prophecy come. So when you have a plague of hail, it's real hail. When you have a plague of locusts, they're real locusts. He uses natural things, but he orchestrates them in order to make his prophecies come true. So the idea then of a massive object passing near the earth would account for all of the phenomenon of the seals and most of the trumpets, where you've got earthquakes and islands being shifted out of place and mountains falling into the sea. All that kind of stuff would easily be explained by the near pass of a massive object, because what would happen is an object moving in space has a gravitational well, it has a tail behind it. Because it goes through space, it sucks things in behind it, and they follow it like a comet's tail. So you get this thing that slams by Earth, changes the orbit, so now we're at 360-day years again. The Earth swings around and comes back to the same place, and what the Earth then does is goes through the debris field that's being towed by this thing a year later, because the debris field is going to be massive. So you have stuff falling from heaven, All that could easily be explained. So, for God, at the time of Daniel, when the year was 365 days, to talk in terms of 360-day years, knowing that when the events of Revelation kick off, he will have changed the year back to 360 days, makes perfect sense to me. None of which is to say that's what's going to happen. I'm simply saying, I can understand how God would speak in 360-day years, even though the standard year at the time the prophecy was given was 365, because he knows that he can turn it back very easily. I am simply putting that out there as a counter to people who will say of Daniel and Revelation that that's all just stupid because the year doesn't match. That's the only reason I'm putting that out. So. In back of me on the slide, I have got the various parts of scripture where these times are described. It's described as 42 months in Revelation 11:2 and Revelation 13:5. It's described as three and a half years, and the way it's described is time times and half a time. And that's in Daniel 7.24 and 12.7, which we're going to study tonight, and then in Revelation 12.14. It's also described as 1260 days. And that's in Revelation 11.3 and Revelation 12.6. The thing that kicks all of this off is the abomination of desolation. That is discussed in Daniel 
Daniel 12.11, Matthew 24.15, and Mark 13.14. And then finally, we have in Daniel chapter 9 a description of somebody who is going to make a covenant, and at the middle of that covenant he's going to break it. And that's in Daniel 9.27. So that's where we're going to be tonight as we finish up Daniel. And that's why I've got those on the board, so A, I can find them quickly, and B, that if you're making notes, you can get them in your notes. So let's start off in Daniel. And I think we left off last time at Daniel 36, and what I said about Daniel 36 is from there to the end of the chapter, it's kind of ambiguous who's being spoken about. In other words, before Daniel 36, we had what I called the soap opera, where you can go through and you had the king of the north and the king of the south and all the court intrigue and wars and machinations that go on over a period of a couple hundred years between those guys, and those are pretty easily identifiable. As you get to Daniel 36 and beyond, it becomes hazy whether we're talking about the kings of the north and the kings of the south as they were described in the soap opera, or whether we're looking forward in time and we're talking about somebody at the end of the days. It could be dual fulfillment, too. So, for example, we have three different abominations that occur in the temple. One of them that occurred at the time of the Maccabees, and then we had one at the time of the Romans when Titus Vespasian spread the eagle's wings over the tabernacle, if you will, the eagle being the symbol of Rome. And then you have one that is yet future. And that one will occur in the rebuilt temple, which indicates, at least as I understand it, all of this depends on there being a third temple, which is not yet in existence. So you've got three different abominations of desolation. You've got what you could call partial fulfillment of these scriptures. And you've also then got some stuff that is clearly at the time of the end. And then we got some days that don't make sense to anybody, or at least not to me. If you add an Adar bed in there, that actually might work. So we're in Daniel 11:36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. Don't have any idea what that means. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. God of fortresses, I am assuming if we're talking about the time of the Maccabees, would be Ares or Mars, the god of war. That's a guess. At the time of the end, not sure who we're talking about. So he shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. And again, that would negate Mars or Ares because his ancestors did know that god. 39. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. You can sort of see Antiochus Epiphanes, because he did a lot of that, but it doesn't quite fit. 
So it's possible that we're talking about the man of sin at the end of days. One of the things that Antiochus did uh, is there were two parties of Jews at the time of the Maccabees. There were those who followed Torah and there were those who were Hellenized. And the Hellenized Jews were allies of Antiochus. Sort of like liberals today become allies against the church of God. In other words, oh, well, we don't believe that stuff. And you have things like Episcopalian priestesses and Presbyterian, whatever they call them, S's. You have an atheist priest. And the thing about these mainline churches that have become apostate is, anybody seen Men in Black, the movie? Remember Edgar? Edgar was the hick that got skinned by the alien and the alien put on an Edgar suit. So Edgar was always walking around like this because he was actually being operated by an alien. Well, the churches today have become like Edgar. They have the form of the church as it used to be, but it has been thoroughly infiltrated by apostates. And you have, as I say, lesbian priestesses and all sorts of things, which they celebrate proudly. But the reason that's important is because to the majority of people who aren't really paying attention, when somebody like you who knows scripture goes out and says, this is wrong, what they'll do is they'll trot out one of those denizens of the Edgar church, and he'll say, oh no, that's not what that means at all. Convincingly, he will say with the authority of a church that what you happen to be saying according to the word of God, no, 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 that's not what that means at all. And what they'll do is they will lead people astray by confusing them because most people haven't read the Bible. They have Bible sound bites. So if you have somebody in the Episcopal or the Presbyterians or whoever they are, Methodists, what they'll do is they'll stand up and say, this guy over here is a crazy fundamentalist and nobody believes that and that's not what scripture believes anyway and I believe in a God of love and God that I believe in wouldn't do any of that and you don't have to worry. And so what he will do then is lull people who don't know any better to sleep. That's why the Edgar Church is important. And that's why the Satan has taken over the Edgar Church. And we'll see that, by the way, in the false prophet when we get to Revelation. You'll have somebody with the color of the Edgar Church who will stand up and proclaim that the beast is truly the Messiah. You have the same phenomena in Jeremiah. What happens in Jeremiah is society had become just as corrupt as it is today. And the Jews would stand and point to the temple and say, the temple is our protection. And what God said through Jeremiah is, you've turned the temple into a den of thieves. It is no longer a protection for you. So the form, the building, the priesthoods, and all that kind of stuff was still there. But God looked at it and said, that's an Edgar temple. It will not do what you think it will do, and the protection that you think you can count on is gone. So now, Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Well, now we're back to the king of the south. At the time of the end, end of what? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. 
Edom and Moab in the main part of the Ammonites. So what's going to happen is you're going to have a massive war, and this could very well be the Gog-Magog war we're talking about. It's going to take everything except Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, which is modern-day Jordan. The king of the north, you remember, had all of Syria, Persia, all the way over to India, clear up to the Caspian Sea, lots of territory. So this could arise from the same regions. What isn't clear is if we're still talking about the Seleucids. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. That, as far as I know, doesn't match the events of the Maccabees. So it seems to be yet future. And the area between the sea and the glorious mountain would be the plain to the south of the pass at Megiddo. As we're looking here, the holy mountain, I am assuming, is here at Jerusalem. You've got the central ridge that runs up through the west bank, and you've got the coastal plain. And here you've got the plain of Esdraelon or Jezreel Valley. You've got the pass at Megiddo somewhere here. And so if he's setting up his tents between the holy mountain, Jerusalem, and the sea, he's probably setting it up somewhere on this plain. And the idea then is you could be talking about the Battle of Armageddon because that's the area that we're coming down to. So as I come back here now to Daniel, it says in verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So the idea there is that we know that there's going to be a battle of Armageddon, which literally means Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, and it could be in the plain of Esdraelon or the Esdraelon Valley, which is north of the Megiddo Pass, or it could be on the coastal plain, which is south of the Megiddo Pass. But the Megiddo Pass is key terrain for going up and down the coastal route in Israel. So now we're in chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. All right, so this is what's called the time of Jacob's trouble, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you have then the resurrection, which I am seeing as the second coming because that's one of the things that's going to happen. Verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Two things about this here. This is a sealed book. The fact that nobody really understands it, and you have all of these theories going on, is by design. One of the things that I have said in the past, but it would be good to say right now, is God does not write prophecy so 
that you can invest in stocks and make lots of money by reading his prophecy. In other words, he doesn't tell you the future in a way that you can use it to affect the current time. What he does is he gives you prophecy so that after it's passed, you can look back on it and say, oh, that's what he meant, and have faith that he does know the end from the beginning, but he doesn't want you to do fortune telling with his prophecies. Daniel is told that the book is sealed. You're not to understand it. Conversely, the book of Revelation is not sealed. You are supposed to understand that. And so the idea that as people try and correlate this stuff and bounce Revelation and Daniel off against one another and so forth, the fact that you've got so many opinions about this is perfectly normal. It's sort of like Yeshua in Matthew chapter 13 it is. He switches from speaking in plain speak to parables. And that's where the parable of the sower is. And his disciples come and say, Hi, what are you talking about, boss? I don't understand that. And he says, it's given to you to understand, but it's not given to them to understand. And the whole point there is Israel has fallen into apostasy. Israel is about to be sent into exile, which they will be some 40 years after Yeshua's death. And what prophecy is at that point, it is designed not to be understood. So God says to Isaiah, make the minds of these people dull. Hearing they won't understand. The specific instructions to the prophets are, give them these prophecies, but say it in a way that they will not understand it. So they will not turn and repent and be healed because exile has been decreed. So the purpose of the prophecy at that point is, when you're sitting on your butt in Babylon, you go back and you read the prophecies and you say, oh, that's where we went wrong. Because looking back on the prophecies after they have been fulfilled, you can see how the prophet is writing about the things that have happened to you you can see what the warnings mean, and then you can make your adjustments as necessary during your time of exile, because exile is therapeutic. So this is Johnnyology. It's just what I think. What I think doesn't make a whole lot of difference to God. I think that as the events of Daniel unfold, we who go through them will be able to see them as they happen, and we'll say, ah, that's this. And you'll be able then to watch these things unfold, which, of course, will give you comfort in the infallibility of the Word of God, which is a useful thing when you're going through bad stuff. And then, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That doesn't describe today. I don't know what does. I mean, my dear wife just went 1,500 miles in two hours to go visit her grandchildren, stayed there for a week, came back. I picked her up at the airport, and here she is. And the amount of knowledge that you guys carry in your pocket, those of you who have smartphones, is astronomical. It would not have been comprehensible to anybody in Daniel's time. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Standard interpretation, which I agree with, I'm not suggesting that it's anything wrong with it, is there's a seven-year period that starts off with a covenant. And that covenant is listed in Daniel 9. Let's go back there. I'm in 924. 
Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. That sounds pretty final to me. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And that's the crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the Romans. Its end shall come with a flood. And that's in Revelation where the woman who is being chased by the dragon, the dragon lets a flood out of his mouth and the earth soaks it up, those cross. And the end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That's the seven year covenant. For half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So as most people read that, and I agree with it, I'm not arguing with it at all, you have a seven-year covenant. The first three and a half years of the covenant are okay. And then halfway point, he will desecrate the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. And from there you will have the tribulation. Standard interpretation of all that. Understand that for this to be operative, there has to be a new temple. And you have the temple institute that's working like busy bees, getting all the stuff ready for the new temple. With modern construction techniques, it will not take a long time to get a temple up and operating. And once that happens, then you want to look for a treaty, perhaps with the United Nations. This is speculation because one of the things that happens worldwide is things that happen in Jerusalem affect the entire world. So if the Jews put up a temple, you can expect that the world powers are going to probably want to get some kind of a treaty because the Muslims will go berserk. And people thought it was the Oslo Accords, but it's been too long. That wasn't it. So there may be a treaty, and then halfway through that treaty, it gets violated, and the people who made the treaty then persecute Israel for three and a half years. So we're in Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. She is pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great dragon, seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Well, that goes back to Daniel. Tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the Messiah and the crucifixion. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed prepared by God, and she was nourished there for 1260 days, which is three and a half years. Now, if you come down, verse 13, still Revelation 12, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. There's again our three and a half years. 
the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out with his mouth. Coming back to Daniel 9.26, which we just read, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one should be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. All right, so now back to Daniel again. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two stood there, one at this bank of the stream and one at that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it should be for a time, times, and half a time. Again, three and a half years. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise will understand. And again, this goes back to the riff I had earlier about speaking in parables. The prophets and God deliberately speak in parables so that those who are doing wickedly will not understand. But as Yeshua gave to his disciples to understand, for example, the parable of the talents. He says, it's given to you to understand, but they won't understand it. So this is entirely consistent with the way God does prophecy. Verse 11. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away. Okay, now this is at the three and a half year point of the seven year treaty. And from the time the regular burnt offering is taken away, the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there should be 1290 days. That's, again, 30 days plus three and a half years. If that observation is correct, and we have an Adar bet in there, what you have then is three and a half biblical years of 360 days plus an intercalary month to get the agricultural season adjusted to the calendar. You got three and a half years. So in those three and a half years, you need one ADAR bet. It doesn't matter which of the three and a half years has the ADAR bet. But the idea that you do have an ADAR bet in there is what's important. So it'd be three and a half years plus an ADAR bet. So verse 12, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days, which is another 45 days. I don't have any idea what is 45 days. Just don't know. And the point is, we don't know when the treaty starts. The only thing we know is the abomination which is in the middle. So there isn't anything that says that this starts on the first of the year, it starts at Rosh Hashanah, it starts at Yom Kippur, it starts at Passover, it starts on the Roman. We have no idea what the start point is. So 12-12 again. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So what God is saying is, the book is sealed, you don't understand it, we don't understand it, and that's okay. I, I think that we will understand it as it unfolds. 
And with that, we're done with Daniel. <laughs>